Welcome to the 164th episode of the 4th and 24 podcast with Patrick Winograd. I'm your host, Patrick Winograd. In this edition, our topics are a brief overview of my weekend predictions and our weekly look at the MLB, including the final trade deadline discussions. Uh, of course, we got up until Monday, uh, uh, and that those trades, but there were some actually late Monday night after we recorded and some of them during while the process of recording was being done. And also there were a lot of trades on deadline day itself, including obviously the biggest one of them all uh, with the Juan Soto trade, but we'll get to that in a second. First, let's jump right in with a look back at my weekend predictions, which are posted every Thursday on our website, 4thand24.com. In the MLB, which was the only league I predicted in this weekend, I went 2-2, two and two, which brought me to a 439-309 and 309 overall record, a 58.7 winning percentage. Uh, the way that that happened was that the Dodgers swept the Padres. I might have been trying to reverse jinx the Dodgers a little bit, so I picked the Padres, but in actuality, I mean, I kind of picked the Padres because I thought that Fernando Tatis Jr. was coming back this weekend, potentially. It ended up being just a rehab start uh, for him, which I think started on Saturday in A instead of him actually playing on the Major League roster like a bunch of people had anticipated for a while this season, that this might be the date that he might play uh, in the series against the Dodgers. And I thought him combined with all the acquisitions they had made, their team really needing to make a statement against the Dodgers to uh, get over the hump with the lead that the Dodgers had would combine to give them a win. But um, instead... And I also thought that, you know, Chris Taylor and uh, Justin Turner being out would hurt the Dodgers' case a lot, but... Instead, uh, Max Muncy and Cody Bellinger really filled the holes that Taylor and Turner left. And by the way, Chris Taylor actually did play in the series and had an RBI double in the first game of the series. Um, so all the things that I thought would happen in a good way for the Padres didn't happen. And you add that in with the reverse jinx factor. And I'm pretty, it's pretty obvious how I got this wrong. You should never pick against the Dodgers. And, you know, even though the Guardians beat them that one time. Uh, still always the, the pick to pick the Dodgers. I don't think they've lost many other series this season other than that one in the middle of the week to the Nationals and, you know, the occasional series against the Pirates because for some reason the Dodgers just can't solve that team this year. But moving on from that, there was the very odd five-game series this weekend. I initially thought that I wasn't going to be able to predict what I thought was the best series of the weekend, the closest series of the weekend, uh, between the Mets and the Braves, another NL first and second place battle within the division. Obviously, Braves in second place, Mets in first place, uh, and the Mets at home again, and that, uh, the Mets took four of five from the Braves in this series. I predicted that correctly. Uh, I didn't really expect this, uh, expect one team to win more than three games, honestly. I definitely thought no matter which way it went, it was going to be three games. I, I didn't really expect four out of five from either team just because you either... You either win every game that's not part of the doubleheader on Saturday, and then you just win one of those two... Or you have to sweep the doubleheader and then also win on Thursday and Friday and then not Sunday or, you know, whatever days it is in some random order. But just very, very challenging to do in with teams that are pretty evenly matched. Uh, but the Mets moved their overall record uh, to 8-4 this year against the Braves. So they have, uh, I wouldn't say dominated the head-to-head -head matchup because a lot of the games have been somewhat close, but... They have dealt with the Braves handily, and, you know, maybe the narrative about the Mets choking won't come to fruition this year. I didn't really think it ever would. I've been very firm in my belief that the Mets would win this division over the Padre, I mean, over the Braves, sorry, for a long time. But 
you know, you never know. And a lot of people keep saying that the Braves are going to uh, come back and win this division. I keep, I keep talking about the fact that there's the date that everybody keeps saying and it moves back every single week. And then when they play each other and the Mets take the series and it moves back even more. And then they say, fine, we'll get you the next time. And really every single time the next time has come around, the Mets have been able to step up to the plate. I don't really think it's been that. I don't think it's that big of an issue long-term for the Braves. Uh, I just do think that the Mets are going to win this division and it's just going to be about the Braves having to play whoever takes the one seed out of the Mets and the Dodgers in that second round, uh, and also having a tough wild card matchup with maybe the Padres. At this point, actually, the team in that position would be the Phillies, but we'll get to that later. Uh, but speaking of teams in the uh, Eastern divisions, let's talk about the Yankees. They got swept this weekend by the Cardinals. I picked the Yankees. I thought that Jordan Montgomery would not have the best debut with his new team, the Cardinals. Um, but instead, he actually ended up shutting out the Yankees in a Domingo Herman start. Uh, I think the Cardinals won that game one to nothing, uh, and the Yankees just overall this weekend went really quiet with their offense until Sunday, and even on Sunday they lost twelve to nine. So while the bats were alive again, they still found a way to lose the game. So uh, yeah, I mean the Yankees just had a rough weekend. I did pick them. I thought they were going to win the series, but the Cardinals they they played a great series this weekend. They out hit the Kings of Hitting pretty much this year, um, and that is something that not many teams have been able to do. And the Cardinals did it this weekend, so we'll see. I, I, again, not one of those things that I think is a super long-term issue, but at the same time, you have to give credit where credit is due. The Cardinals played great this weekend to sweep the Yankees. It's hard to sweep any team, let alone a team as good as the Yankees have been this year, but that is five losses in a row for the Yankees. We're going to get to that in a second. Speaking of that division, uh, the Orioles took two or three from the Pirates this weekend. That was another win for me. Probably a pretty easy series to predict, but... Look, the Twins and the Blue Jays were in a four-game series. A lot of the other teams were in a four-game series. I got lucky that the Mets and the Braves even had that Saturday doubleheader to make it a five-game series, something that I've never predicted before. Uh, so I got lucky, but at the same time, I had to throw in a fourth series, so I just picked the Orioles and the Pirates. They, they, they were probably had the closest record differential. Um, I'm glad I didn't pick the Reds and the Brewers series because the Brewers found a way to choke that, and I would have gotten that wrong. Um, but... Overall, it was a pretty good weekend for me. Obviously, the reverse jinx is kind of, you know, I probably could have gone 3-1 and one if I wasn't so superstitious about my own hometown team, and I'm not really upset about that loss. And then, look, I, I, I couldn't have predicted the Cardinals beating the Yankees, honestly. It just didn't seem, I wouldn't say it didn't seem realistic, but especially the sweep, the, the sweep did not seem realistic. But picking the Cardinals was a little iffy. It wasn't like I hesitated though on the Yankees at all so I mean I was definitely going to pick them no matter what reasoning someone would have given me to pick against them so uh not really upset about that loss either sometimes that just happens that a team just gets outplayed for a weekend even though they may be the better team overall uh but my predictions for next weekend will be posted on our website on Thursday for now let's keep talking about those Yankees as we move on to the AL East and the standings as I mentioned, the Yankees are in first place in the AL East. They are currently 70-39, and 39, although they no longer have the best record in baseball. That now belongs to the Dodgers. Um, and look, technically, the Dodgers had it by win percentage for a while now, but the Dodgers have really taken control of it in wins and, uh, and, and win percentage by a really large margin at this point. Uh, but the Yankees... Their lead is now no longer double digits anymore. The Blue Jays have closed to within nine and a half games, and yes, it's still a big lead. 
But the Yankees have lost five in a row. They're four and six in their last ten, while the Blue Jays are six and four in their last ten, although the win on Sunday wasn't really deserved, but that's a different discussion. Uh, with that ending against the Twins, you can go uh, you can go look that up on YouTube on highlights or something, but let's just say the Blue Jays kind of got gifted a run by a very bad umpire ruling, and uh, yeah, I agree with Rocco Baldelli that that was not obstruction. Uh, but let's let's move on from that and talk about the team overall. The Blue Jays closing down that lead from the Yankees, uh, continuing to lead the wild card race, which is you know they're in a, they're in a good position. I think their fans weren't exactly happy with what they were doing at the trade deadline, and they really waited to the last minute to make some improvements. But they didn't end up doing too badly, I would argue. But I, I mean, I could still understand why. Their fans kind of wanted some more out of their front office to make some more deals done based on how they've played the season and, you know, having one of their better seasons of recent memory, really kind of since the Jose Bautista years. Uh, but, you know, they still did okay, and we'll get to that in a second. But overall, still nine and a half games back in the division. Still second place, though, in a division that w- that's probably still the best division in baseball. Then you have the Tampa Bay Rays, who are 11 and a half games back. They're 58 and 50 on the season. Not much to talk about with the Rays. You have the Orioles, who are 56-52, and 52, and uh, basically any point you can pick from early to mid-July, and really the start of August, too. This team has the best record, or second or third best record, in all of baseball, including the Dodgers, everybody. I mean, they have really been on fire recently, and even since the trade deadline, they started out with a five-game winning streak after they had traded Trey Mancini, and I think the team was... Really fired up. They were at 500 at 51 and 51, and despite losing their Sunday game against the Pirates, they had won five games in a row prior to that. Uh, so they still end up at four games above 500, 13 and a half games back of the Yankees, two back of the Rays, four back of the Blue Jays, and three games ahead of the Boston Red Sox, who are now in last place in this division. Two games under 500, had by far the worst trade di- deadline approach of any team except for the Rockies, who claimed to make the only uh, extension of the deadline, and yet the Braves extended Austin Riley, and also the Rockies were the only team who actually didn't make a single trade. Uh, so, other than the Rockies, though, the Red Sox definitely take that uh, take that cake for the worst front office performance of the deadline, if I'm going to be quite honest. Um, and look, they've lost two in a row. They're four and six in their last ten. I don't see the energy with this team, even with De- Devers coming back from injury. They managed to lose a series over the weekend to the Royals. It just doesn't there's nothing lining up for this team that seems great. Um, I, I guess Eric Hosmer has hit a bunch of near home runs uh, in his few games with the Red Sox so far, but I don't know if near home runs by Eric Hosmer are the thing that might save this team, despite that, you know, they would probably be home runs in Fenway. Uh, but in the AO East, in terms of trades, the there were a lot of trades, but obviously some of them were before, especially the Yankees trades. But they had a perplexing one at the end, but I'm going to start with Toronto. They acquired two right-hand relief pitchers, Anthony Bass and Zach Pop from the Mariners for an MLB Top 100 prospect, Jordan Groshans. However, I will say he's a very, very good prospect, but in terms of his positional value to the Blue Jays, they have Bo Bichette at shortstop, so he was really kind of getting blocked out of making it to the MLB, kind of in the same way that a lot of the Dodgers infield prospects, mainly Gavin Lux for a lot of years, was blocked up by Corey Seager, and then you know the Dodgers traded for Manny Machado. So as you keep going down uh, the years, if you want to compete, you might block out some of your top prospects from making it to the majors without making a positional change. And uh, because of that, I don't really mind this trade. They got two players for one. 
One of them was going to help them in the future. The next two are helping them on a potential playoff run this year, and I think that's what their fans want to see. So, you know, again, their fans still weren't upset. We were a little bit upset and kind of wanted more, but this was still a good move to solidify their bullpen. Uh, they also acquired Whit Merrifield from Kansas City for two prospects. Obviously, the most notable part of that trade was that he was previously unable to travel to Toronto to play on the road because he was unvaccinated, but obviously they're resolving that issue before he uh, ends up making it to the team because, well, if he didn't, then, well, he couldn't play there. So uh, not exactly great uh, for Toronto in terms of how people think they did at the trade deadline, but I think, you know, I honestly don't think it's as bad as people are making it out to be. I feel like people are reacting like, you know, they they probably, if you gave them a grade, you'd give them like a C or a C minus. I really feel like this is more of a B or a B minus situation where kind of like their season, they it's not like they have lived up to their expectations and it's not like they've done everything they wanted to do, but they're still having a good season. I feel like this still was a good trade deadline. It just wasn't the great trade deadline that people were hoping for, uh, but if you want to talk about great trade de deadlines, you have the exact opposite with Boston. We know about their trying of buying and selling at the same time. There were more moves involved with this later, but Boston acquired Eric Hosmer and two minor leaguers for prospect Jay Groom after Hosmer vetoed a trade from San Diego to Washington. Hosmer is a good player. He will make the Red Sox a little bit better, I think, I guess. Uh, but just overall, it's just so weird that they want to bring in Eric Hosmer but then they trade away Christian Vasquez, who really had a, a big role in the team, was really important last year in their playoff run. And he is your catcher. He's your signal caller. He's your main catcher. So uh, just a weird, weird, weird approach uh, from the Red Sox in general. And I just don't really understand what the goal was, because I don't really think they made their, themselves better this year or in the future with what they did. So I'm a little bit confused in terms of what exactly they were doing. Um, but that was all they did other than some other trades that we already mentioned. Uh, then you had Baltimore who acquired Brett Phillips from the Tampa Bay Rays for cash considerations. This one's interesting because they were actually going, the Rays, I should say, were actually going to DFA him, um, after they made a trade for Jose Siri, but, well, as part of the Trey Mancini three-team deal, but I guess the Orioles knew that he wouldn't clear waivers to their spot on the waiver claim, uh, order, so they decided to make a trade for some cash instead to actually ensure that he would get on their team. It's pretty interesting, uh, but you know, doesn't it doesn't really move the needle when you're talking about Baltimore? And I still think I'd rather a Trey Mancini-led Baltimore team without Brett Phillips than a Brett Phillips-led. Well, he's obviously not the leader of the team, but with Brett Phillips on it and not Trey Mancini. But look, they're still in the playoff race. And Baltimore's still playing the long game because, look, they've been playing the long game for a while. One season of being around 500 is not going to change that fact. They are looking to build a championship contender in a year or two, not a fringe playoff contender right now. Hate to say it, I if I was a Baltimore fan, I'd not want them to, tra to trade Trey Mancini, obviously. But at the same time, you can see where the approach is coming from. They have a very clear vision, and they are acting on that right now. Then the Yankees acquired Harrison Bader, who was a center fielder who's currently injured, but very, very good, um, for left-handed starter Jordan Montgomery, who actually ended up pitching a shutout against the Yankees in his Cardinals debut. Um, it's This was a weird trade. I, you don't often see teams trading a starting pitcher for another team's injured outfielder, but uh, 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, this one's interesting to me. I can see why the Yankees want Harrison Bader. He brings a lot of speed to their team that, you know, isn't necessarily the fastest team. He brings a gold glove defense in the outfield. He's still a good hitter outside of speed and just being a great defender, but it's just kind of weird to trade one of your starters. It's just, it's just odd. I mean, you don't normally see that from teams who've been as successful as the Yankees, but that's all I got on the AL East. We'll move on to the AL Central now, where the Twins are still in first, barely, uh, at 57 and 51. The Guardians are trailing them now by one game at 56 and 52. The White Sox are trailing both of those teams. Uh, they're trailing the Twins by two games and the Guardians by one game. Uh, both the Guardians and the White Sox 6 and 4 in their last 10. And the White Sox now with a 55 and 53 record. They're getting closer to getting in the lead of this division, although they have two teams to contend for, which makes it all the more uh, difficult. Uh, but, you know, th these teams finally did make moves at the deadline, but we'll get to that after we kind of skim over the fact that the Royals are in fourth place at 13 and a half back, uh, and the Tigers are in last place at 15 games back at 43 and 67. The Royals are 44 and 65 on the season. But in terms of the division, in terms of the trade deadline, I really feel like the only team who did anything significant, I think it's true, uh, it's the Twins. And you would kind of expected maybe the Guardians and the White Sox to try to make a push to get a little bit better because they're outside of the wild card race and the divisional race right now. They're on the outside looking in. Uh, they're definitely in the race, but, you know, not on the right side of it. Um, and the Twins just decided to really fortify their team in any way possible, whereas the White Sox, everybody thought this was their year to really contend and they haven't done that so far. And then now that we're at the trade deadline, they're still not really trying to help themselves, which kind of in the same way as Toronto, you just feel like you want more. Um, and in the White Sox case, they didn't even get anywhere near as much as Toronto did. They pretty much got nothing at the trade deadline. Just Jake Diekman, uh, who he's a good reliever. He's a good lefty reliever. They need that right now. I think they only had, actually, I don't think they had any lefty relievers in their pen, uh, at some point this year, but definitely wanting more if you're a White Sox fan. Uh, but Minnesota, if you're a Minnesota fan, you should be happy. They acquired all-star closer Jorge Lopez from Baltimore for four minor league pitchers. Then also acquired right-handed starter Tyler Malley from Cincinnati for three minor leaguers. And lastly, acquired right-handed reliever Michael Fulmer from within the division from Detroit for a minor league pitching prospect. Very, very interesting all around, but the Twins get two relief pitchers and a starting pitcher to fortify what is, I wouldn't say weak pitching, but we can all agree that if you're looking at this team, their strength is their offense. Their weakness is probably their pitching. They have the same amount of runs scored. Well, actually... They have two more runs scored on the season than the Houston Astros, who have a plus 126 run differential. The problem is they've also allowed 101 extra runs uh, that Houston hasn't. So in the end, you get a team that's only a plus 27 run differential. I mean, look, the Twins can score with the best of, best of them. They're only behind the Yankees and the Blue Jays, although there are some more NL teams they're behind. But in terms of the AL, that's, that's who they're behind in runs. They're third in runs scored. Uh, but at the same time, their pitching needed to get better, and they tried to address that concern with their deadline acquisitions. I don't think they did a terrible job. And then the only other trade that happened in this division was that the Orioles acquired Brent Rooker from San Diego, a former twin, actually, for catcher Cam Gallagher. But let's move on from the AL Central to the AL West. Very, 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 very quiet on the trade front after the Astros had made all their acquisitions. But the Astros, uh, the team I just mentioned, 70 and 40. They are 11 games up on the second place Mariners, who are 59 and 51 on the season. 
the Rangers are 10 games behind the Mariners and 21 behind the Astros at 48 and 60, while the Angels continue to fall even farther behind in this division, now 23 and a half games back with a 46 and 63 record. Uh, and then finally, you have the A's at the bottom of the division who have a 41 and 68 record, which is 28 and a half games back of the Houston Astros. Uh, the only trade in this division was that the Mariners acquired, I guess you could call him an infielder or outfielder, or Jake Lamb from the Dodgers for cash considerations or a player to be named later. Uh, we'll get to why the Dodgers made this deal later because uh, it's really doesn't have anything to do with production or what Jake Lamb may uh, wasn't doing or was doing for the Dodgers. It was more about some back-end stuff, but we'll get to that in a second. Uh, for now, let's move on to the wild card before we get to the NL. Uh, look, right now you have the Blue Jays at the top of the wild card, as I mentioned. They are two games out of both the Rays and the Mariners, who are tied for, I guess, the second and the third spot in the wild card. Uh, then you have the Guardians and the Orioles, who are both two games back of the Mariners and the Rays at 56 and 52. You have the White Sox, who are three back at 55 and 53, uh, and the Red Sox, who are 54 and 56, five games back. Definitely looking the least likely out of any of those teams to get to the wild card just based on their momentum recently, or, well, lack thereof, I should say. Um, and then when you talk about the White Sox and the Guardians, the interesting thing to note is that they're three games back uh, if you're the White Sox of a wild card spot, and two games back if you're the Guardians. But in the division, it's only two games for the White Sox and one game for the Guardians. So the eighth hypothetical team to slide into this discussion are the Minnesota Twins, who would be one game back of a wild card spot uh, if they were to be replaced by either the White Sox or the Guardians uh, as the division leaders. So it's pretty interesting to think about. It looks like the AL Central might be a one-team division, or yeah, one team in the playoffs division. But at the same time, they could get all three of the Guardians, White Sox, and... Uh, Twins in there, depending on what happens the rest of the season. I think the head-to-head -head matchups against each other might change that a lot, though. But at the same time, the Blue Jays, Rays, Orioles, and Red Sox are all fighting for the same spot, while the Yankees are fighting to stay atop their division. So there's a lot of there's a lot of things that can take teams out. I think really it makes the Mariners look pretty secure in their position because they have a lot of games left against the Rangers, the Angels, and the A's. Whereas you know the Blue Jays' easiest game in their division is coming against the Red Sox, which no matter how badly they've fallen apart recently, they're still better than any of the other three teams in the AL West who aren't currently in the playoff picture. So uh, the schedule is going to determine a lot of this. The Mariners really just have to stay the course and understand that the teams above them are likely to fall a little bit when they play each other, whereas they're more likely to keep shooting up when they play teams in their division because they are much worse teams. But let's move on now from the AL to the NL, and we'll start in the NL East with the New York Mets, who are 70-39 and 39 on the season. That record, obviously good enough to have them in the division lead so far, and uh, we just talked about how that lead got bigger this weekend with their series against the Braves. However, uh, the lead over the Braves got bigger, but the lead over the Phillies actually shrunk because the Phillies went 5-0 and this weekend. They're 9-1 and in their last 10 Five-game winning streak, they're 60-48 and 48 on the season, just nine and a half games back. You know, it's still still a sizable margin, but same margin between the Yankees and the Blue Jays, uh, a much smaller margin than the Dodgers and the Padres, but we'll get to that later. Uh, and then obviously, well, as I said, in between those two teams are the Atlanta Braves, who are 64-46. and 46. They are six and a half games back despite losing four of the five games over the weekend against the Mets. 
Uh, then you have the Marlins going over the, skipping over the Phillies to get to fourth place. You have the Marlins, who are 49 and 59 on the season. They're 20 and a half games back of the Mets. Uh, they really don't look like they're going to be in contention at all. Then you have the Nationals, who, of course, traded away Juan Soto and are 36 and 74 on the season. 34 and a half games back of the first place Mets. So let's talk about the trades in this division, because this division had the most, I think, by any on trade deadline day. Let's start with Atlanta who acquired Jake Odorizzi, a starting pitcher from Houston, in exchange for one of their high-leverage relievers, a lefty Will Smith. No, not that Will Smith, and no, not the other Will Smith. Uh, then they acquired Robbie Grossman from Detroit for Chris Anglin, a left-handed uh, pitcher from the minor leagues. Finally, they ended the deadline by acquiring the closer of the Los Angeles Angels, Rysel Iglesias, for right-handed reliever Jesse Chavez and left-handed reliever Tucker Davidson, who I think had actually previously started some for the Braves, too, and was one of their higher-rated prospects a few years ago, but now kind of was stuck in the bullpen and in the minor league starting a little bit, and who also gave up a grand slam in his debut with the Angels uh, to Jesse Winker. That's just a little fun fact. And speaking of the Angels, they made a lot more trades. I, I didn't talk about it as much in that division because I didn't want to spoil the surprise, but surprise, surprise, Philadelphia acquired Brandon Marsh from the Angels, for catching prospect Logan O'Hop, Philadelphia then acquired right-handed relief pitcher David Robertson, previously the Cubs' closer, from the Cubs for pitching prospect Ben Brown. Philadelphia continued to make noise and really make some calls to the Angels by acquiring Noah Syndergaard for, My for Mickey Moniak and outfield prospect Jadiel Sanchez. The Phillies were way more active than I thought they would be at the deadline, and I really feel like this winning streak is all due to the deadline. You really don't... I mean, a lot of times you can say that you think the momentum is going to go in the team's way as soon as they make some additions. It really adds the fire back into the clubhouse. But this team, I mean, I don't think it was really all on Joe Girardi, but since his firing, they have a really, really good record. I bet if you went back to the exact day, I don't remember exactly when, and I maybe could do that search and maybe talk about it on the next podcast. But since that day, they probably have maybe a top five, top six record uh, in MLB. And they have just played so much better as of recently too, not even just since that time that was so long ago at this point. Uh, just in general, they've been playing very well. I said they're 9-1 in their last 10. You don't play badly and then get to 9-1 and one in your last 10. So the Phillies definitely playing the best out of any team in this division with the exception of the Mets, obviously, who also had a tougher schedule because the Phillies were playing the Nationals. Uh, but then... Going back to the trades, the Mets also acquired Darren Ruff from San Francisco for third baseman J.D. Davis and three pitching prospects. This one was a really interesting trade because J.D. Davis had obviously played some this season for the Mets, definitely was a starter at the beginning of the season, uh, hadn't really been performing as well as they would have liked, and, you know, they have Daniel Vogel back as the lefty who will be the starting DH against any right-handed pitchers, and I guess Darren Ruff is kind of the platoon with him who will start against any right uh, against any left-handed pitchers as a righty who the Giants were really using in that platoon role and then you know the Giants obviously as we know are kind of not doing too hot right now so they'll take some prospects in addition for a player who has some similar production level to Darren Ruff and then uh you know since they have those prospects maybe one of them becomes a good player in the future Giants aren't looking to win this year and it looks like obviously the Mets are and they're doing a great job of it uh, speaking of a team who's doing a great job of winning right now, let's move on to the NL Central where we have the Cardinals at the top of the division. They have won seven games in a row. They are 9-1 in their last 10, pretty similar to the Phillies. 
They are now 60 and 48. They have climbed out of the wild card uh, spot that they were in. They're now two games ahead of the Milwaukee Brewers, who are 58 and 50 after losing two in a row at the end of the weekend to the Cincinnati Reds. Not a good look at all. Uh, the Reds, as I uh, the aforementioned team, are 44 and 63 on the season, still 15 and a half games back of the Cardinals, 13 and a half back of the Brewers, despite taking two of the last three in that series. Uh, and then the Pirates, 16 games back of the Cardinals. They are 44 and 64, and the Cubs are 43 and 64 at 16 and a half games back of the Cardinals. Uh, I talked about St. Louis acquiring Jordan Montgomery in a little bit, uh, obviously from the Yankees' perspective. From their perspective, they get an extra starting pitcher. Uh, they get an extra lefty starting pitcher. And overall, I like the trade. I mean, I think Harrison Bader right now wasn't really going to contribute anything because he's injured. And at the same time, Corey Dickerson has been okay for them this season. Uh, they have obviously a very secure infield when you talk about Goldschmidt and Arenado. And then in their outfield, they have Dylan Carlson. Tyler O'Neill has recently returned from injury. I'm sure they also have some prospects in the minor leagues that might play outfield or maybe might slide into an outfield spot. They even brought Paul DeYoung back up, although obviously not an outfielder. But I, I think they feel very secure with their lineup currently, and I just think that, you know, it'd be hard to find him as much playing time as a player of his caliber should, and they'd right now rather have starting pitching. So that's what they got, and they also did that uh, before by acquiring left-handed starting pitcher Jose Quintana and right-handed relief pitcher Chris Stratton from Pittsburgh for right-handed pitcher Johan Oviedo, who has started a little bit this year, been a reliever mostly, was a starter in the minors. He was kind of an opener a few times this year for the Cardinals. Hard to really describe his role, but I, I'd say he will be a starter for Pittsburgh most likely. Uh, and infielder Malcolm Nunez. So that was really the only trade that was made in the NL Central, obviously, other than the big, big trade with Josh Hader and then you know, the Cubs, the Pirates, and the Reds selling off players to other teams. But that was really the only one where the team in the NL Central was actually improving uh, in between last Monday and this Monday. Obviously, the trade deadline was on Tuesday anyway, but, you know, we only missed the deadline day trades and just that one trade from St. Louis in addition to the Jordan Montgomery trade. But let's move on to the division where the biggest trade of them all happened. Uh, although no trading places atop the leaderboards in the standings, because the Dodgers are now 15 and a half games ahead of the San Diego Padres at 75 and 33, the best record in baseball. They've won eight in a row. They're nine to one in their last 10. Jeez, that's like three teams in the NL who are nine and one in their last 10. It's crazy. Um, the Padres have lost four in a row. They lost the last game of a series against the Rockies before they got swept by the Dodgers. They're now 15 and a half games back. Uh, but obviously, I think they're still pretty happy with what they did at the deadline that we'll get to in a second. To breeze through the rest of the standings, the Giants are 53 and 55, 22 games back of the Dodgers. The Diamondbacks are 48 and 59, 26 and a half games back. And the Rockies are 48 and 63, 28 and a half games back. The Dodgers have the best record in MLB by five and a half games over the Mets and the Yankees and six games ahead of the Astros and are on pace for 112 wins this season. Should have mentioned earlier, but that, that race between the Astros and the Yankees for best record will be an interesting one in the AL. Although, as long as the Dodgers don't trip up tremendously in the last 50-ish games of the season, it doesn't seem like they'll be losing their lead for the best record in all of the league, uh, and will take home field if they make it to the World Series. But, the biggest news, of course, dropped very early on deadline day. A lot of questioning of if it would happen, we foreshadowed it might be the Padres, it might be the Dodgers, it could be the Cardinals, but it was indeed the Padres who acquired Juan Soto and actually added in Josh Bell to that deal 
for Mackenzie Gore, who was previously a very highly rated prospect in San Diego, who is now graduated from being a prospect due to playing a lot of games this season for that team. Uh, their number one prospect, Robert Hassel III, C.J. Abrams, James Wood, uh, another top five prospect, uh, also C.J. Abrams, kind of in that same situation as Mackenzie Gore. He was previously a top prospect, has played a lot this season. And then Yarlene Susana, who a lot of people have been high on in terms of the scouts. I think he's now a top, he was at that point a top 10 prospect in their system, but uh, a lot of people think he can be moving up that that those ranks in the future. So the Nationals got a big haul and then also added in Luke Voigt um, after, you know, Eric Hosmer vetoed the deal. Um, but look, it's one of those deals. You do not know who won this deal until we see really maybe 10 years down the line what's what's going on with C.J. Abrams, with Mackenzie Gore, with James Wood, with Robert Hassell, with Yarlene Sosada. Uh, even, if they, even if the Nationals re-sign Luke Voigt, we'd have to see how that turns out. And the Padres will have to see if they extend Juan Soto or not, and what they do with Josh Bell's contract at the end of the year, and really what happens to this team. I think you'll be able to tell if the if they lost this trade in terms of giving up so much potential uh, by the end of the season, if they either, A, don't make the wild card at all, or B, don't do much with that uh, push. But at the same time, you're looking at prospects who, for, in some cases, might even not make the majors for a year or two, uh, and then obviously the young career of a guy like Mackenzie Gore, or CJ Abrams. So it'll take a while to really see, uh, the, the production that the Padres might or might not have lost in this deal. But the, the nationals did get a lot of talent in return. If they were going to pull off a blockbuster for one of the best young players we've ever had, probably the best under 24, um, they needed to make a big deal and they needed to get a lot of guys back. And they really did. They got a lot of top prospects for the future. They got a lot of guys who have had some major league experience. And then they also had Luke Voigt in there too, uh, to kind of add some pop to the current roster. And then of course, San Diego would also go on to acquire Brandon Drury from Cincinnati for prospect Victor Acosta. Uh, the Dodgers responded to the Padres getting Juan Soto by adding their own uh, outfielder, although maybe was a bigger name. Well, not maybe was definitely a bigger name two years ago. Uh, than he is now, but the Dodgers added Joey Gallo, and they acquired him from the Yankees for Clayton Beater, a minor league uh, starting pitching prospect, a righty, and the Dodgers also would later move on to open up two more 40-man roster spots. I talked about this in the uh, Seattle context where they traded Jake Lamb to Seattle for cash, and they also traded Mitch White to Toronto for two minor leaguers, and they traded another minor leaguer with Mitch White, uh, but they needed to open up two 40-man roster spots. In case you don't know, uh, you have a 40-man roster. That is the roster of players you are eligible to call up to the major leagues. 26 of those players are already on the major league roster, but the rest of the 14 are the guys who are eligible to be called up. Uh, and when you talk about those 14 spots, it's very important. And also, it gets crowded in there, especially when you have a loaded roster. And when a player goes on the 60-day IL, you add another player in their place, but they no longer take up a spot on the 40-man roster so as it stands right now, before the trade deadline, the Dodgers would have had to DFA or option or trade somebody to get Walker Buehler back on the roster. The same thing for uh, Blake Trinan and the same thing for Danny Duffy or Tommy Canley or anybody else that the Dodgers might be bringing back later in the season. So they needed the, they needed the roster space. They needed the little wiggle room there. They brought up Miguel Vargas for his MLB debut. Obviously, James Outman had a crazy debut in the MLB, uh, but... That was the thought process there with the Dodgers and then having Joey Gallo as 
that uh, kind of a guy that they can platoon in the outfield. You know, a lot of people are talking about how he's similar to Max Muncy and Cody Bellinger, kind of a mix of the two. And, you know, all those strikeouts can't be very good for the lineup. But I think the Dodgers are really just taking a very low cost rental that might do very well. And if he doesn't, he just won't play very much. I mean, he still has value as a gold glove level defender. He won a gold glove last year, despite Yankees fans <laughs> booing him all the time. Uh, so, you know, he Joey Gallo still has a lot of things that he can contribute and then a lot of things that maybe if he fixes swing a little bit will make him a permanent starter on this team. But for now, the Dodgers still have other options that they've been playing throughout the time that they've been playing really well. And, you know, they swept the Padres. Joey Gallo, Trace Thompson, didn't matter who started. Uh, Cody Bellinger had two home runs in a game uh, on Sunday against you, Darvish. So the Dodgers don't really need Joey Gallo, I would say. But I, I think the move actually makes a lot more sense than a lot of people initially thought when you consider that there's no real need for talent on the roster. It's just, can you get the most out of the guys that are there? And they really have three or four guys now who haven't exactly played up to how well they can play, but at the same time have potential to be very, very good. They have Cody Bellinger, who has won an MVP and the Rookie of the Year in the past. Max Muncy, who could have been an MVP candidate if he didn't get injured at the end of last year, if he had a strong finish there. Uh, and obviously Joey Gallo, not necessarily ever really in the MVP conversation per se, but a gold glove defender who can also hit 40 home runs in a season. So a lot of potential. And, you know, even if one of those three guys comes up big by the end of the season and kind of fits, fills himself in as a shoe and starter every day, when you get Justin Turner back, when you get some of those guys back from the rotation uh, and also from the bullpen, this will be the best roster in baseball if it isn't already, which I think it is at this point. Um, and I think that record speaks to that. But in the wild card, moving on from the Dodgers, let's talk about that team that they just swept. The Padres are now the third spot in the wild card after that sweep. The Phillies have climbed above them by a half a game, while the Braves have maintained their three and a half game lead over the Padres and a three game lead over the Phillies. Just outside of the wild card, you have the Milwaukee Brewers, who after their series loss to the Reds, uh, are one and a half games back of the Padres. Really, if they had won their series over the weekend against the Reds, they could be in the wild card and the Padres could be out of it, regardless of, you know, Milwaukee in the divisional standings. Uh, they could be in the wild card right now and they're, they, they're not playing well. They need to start playing better. I'm not so sure how the Josh Hader deal went over in the locker room, but judging by the Devin Williams reaction that I saw, probably didn't go over too well and that might be a part of it. Maybe they can pick it up at the end of the season, find something to rally around and uh, start playing as good as they can. And maybe even they knock one of the Padres or the Phillies out of playoff position uh, or obviously even the Cardinals within their own division. And then the last team who's really kind of in contention, but not really, they're kind of bowing their heads out at this point, uh, are the San Francisco Giants who are 53 and 55. They're six and a half games back. They've won two in a row. They are 5-5 five and five in their last 10, but they are starting a series with the Padres. Could be interesting. Maybe they kind of knock, try to make a statement by knocking the Padres out of the playoffs and bringing themselves closer to the wild card by the end of the week. But speaking of the end of the week, that wraps up this edition of the 4th and 24 podcast. Please be sure to check out our next podcast, which will be on Monday, August 15th, where we will once again look at my weekend predictions and also look at Major League Baseball action. And in the meantime, be sure to check out my additional content, including my picks for next weekend's games, which will be released on Thursday, and my MLB Power Rankings that will be updated tomorrow. All of that is on our website, 4thand24.com. That's the number 4, T-H-A-N-D, the number 24.com. Thank you for listening.